0: Earlier this month, Fitch ratings downgraded our federal government's credit rating. But wait, didn't President Biden and Speaker McCarthy resolve the debt ceiling issue? Yes, they did. But they didn't resolve the issue of our gigantic public debt, which, thanks to our polarized politics,
1: (laughs) just keeps on growing. The United States um, came out of our civil war with a... uh, higher debt-to-GDP ratio than before, and oh, it was wow. almost able to re- retire the entirety of that debt by the eve of World War One. People with property or wealth tend to also be bondholders, where their interests tend to be aligned with those of the bondholders. Interesting, interesting. You know, one, one explanation for how it was uh, Britain was able to run um, budget surpluses, primary budget surpluses in every year between 1821, when it finally uh, came out of the Napoleonic and French wars, and 1899, the end of the century, is that- I'm sorry, let me stop you one more, please. Britain ran
0: budget surpluses from 1821 to 1899. For what purpose
1: did monarchs start borrowing money? In almost all cases, uh, in order to fight defensive and offensive wars. City-states, I think Siena in the 14th century borrowed uh, to meet a public health emergency, the Black Death, occasions where monarchs or Republican legislatures in in Italian city-states imposed forced loans on their uh, wealthy citizenry. I love it. Forced loans, okay. You You will buy these bonds. In, in ensuring that the interest rate the government faces will be lower than otherwise because there's an additional investor, a big investor to buy the government's bonds, namely the central bank. I'll, I'll give you a couple uh, uh, of additional answers. I see the perplexed look on your face. <laughs> Did you know that if US Treasury bonds are bought by a
0: branch of our federal government, say the Social Security Administration, they're not counted? as debt held by the public. But if U.S. Treasury bonds are bought by the Federal Reserve, they are counted as debt in the hands of the public. You appreciate how complicated this is.
1: It's more complicated every minute we talk. (laughs) Hey there, newspeelers.
0: Today's August 18th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News Podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. On August 1st, Fitch Ratings downgraded America's credit rating from AAA to AA+, which means that Germany, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and Denmark now have better credit ratings than we do. Fitch Ratings' stated reason for this month's downgrade is erosion of governance in the U.S., which makes sense because back in June, we were on the brink of a national default thanks to our politicians who are playing political chicken with our nation's debt. And if you recall, back in 2011, during another debt ceiling standoff between Congress and the White House, Standard Poor's downgraded the U.S. government credit rating one notch below the top grade. But does this Fitch ratings downgrade really matter? Just last week, Greg Ipp, the chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal, a senior financial reporter whom I've followed and read for many years now, asked the same question and then answered it. Yes, it does matter. The risk has to do with deficits and interest rates. Mr. Ipp pointed out that after the downgrade by Standard & Poor's in 2011, bond yields actually declined. But this time, after Fitch Rating's downgrade, bond yields rose. Mr. Ipp cites the following data from the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, that the expense of servicing our debt may grow from 1.9% of our GDP last year to 3.7% in 2033. And he further explains that, quote, the U.S. is on track to spend 10% of federal revenue on interest by 2025, compared with just 1% for the average AAA-rated country, unquote. In the detailed caption of this episode, I have dropped a link to Mr. Ipp's sobering report, which I encourage you to read. By the way, the CBO also estimates that our debt to GDP ratio, which was 98% in 2022, will reach 107% by the year 2031 and 185% by the year 2052. The CBO also estimates that we will continue to run a federal budget deficit which it projects will reach 11.1% in the next 30 years. So, given all these reports, opinions, stats, and estimates, we can conclude that public debt is a bad thing, right? Well, not exactly. Let me explain. A few weeks ago, I came across an opinion piece by the editorial board of the New York Times. It's titled, America is Living on Borrowed Money. In it, I read that by 2029, just 6 years from now, our government will spend more on paying interest on our national debt than it will spend on our national defense. But what I found most interesting about this piece is not so much the alarm it raises about our growing debt, rather it's explanation that when implemented correctly, national debt can actually be a good thing. The New York Times cited Dr. Barry Eichengreen's 2021 book, which is titled, In Defense of Public Debt, for the proposition that borrowing makes sense as a way to mobilize national resources, such as in times of war, in times of a pandemic, or another type of natural disaster. And when we want to stimulate our economy, for example, by building useful infrastructure that increase our GDP, which is the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio. So, to better understand public debt, its history, and its correct uses, I read Dr. green's book, In Defense of Public Debt, and invited him to our program. In this conversation, Dr. green tells us when government borrowing is started, and for what reason. Here is a hint. The prime purpose of government borrowing in the past was war. But from whom did governments in past centuries borrow? I'm talking about kings and in some cases queens. Who did they borrow from? Did people lend to monarchs willingly or were they forced to lend to them? And what would have happened if these monarchs defaulted? As did King Philip of Spain. And here's another thing. Did a nation's need to borrow, precipitate political developments or events such as revolutions or formation of parliaments and constitutional monarchies. Most of this discussion with Dr. Eichen green as you will note, takes place in the historical context of European countries. This is because Europeans borrowed more frequently than countries in Asia and Africa. Naturally, the follow-up question is, why? The answer, once again, has to do with war. Of course, we can hardly talk about national debts, without also addressing the role of central banks. Here, things get complicated, but thankfully, we have Dr. Eichen Green to explain it all to us. As we finish our conversation, we get into democracy and debt. Here, Dr. Eichen Green answers the following question. Do democracies demand more debt? The answer is, <laughs> it depends. Dr. Eichengreen also tells us how our democracy can run a surplus and eventually get a handle on our gigantic and growing public debt. Dr. Eichengreen is the chair and distinguished professor of economics and professor of political science at UC Berkeley, where he has received many teaching awards and is also the recipient of other awards such as the 2010 Schumpeter Prize from the International Schumpeter Society and the 2022 recipient of the Nassim Habif Prize for Contributions to Science and Industry. He was named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's 100 Leading Thinkers in 2011, and he's also a past president of the Economic History Association. Beyond Berkeley, Dr. Eichen Green is a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, which most of us know as MBER. He's also a research fellow of the Center for Economic Policy Research in London. His most recent book is titled In Defense of Public Debt, which we discuss in this episode. He is the author of many other books, including Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar, and The Future of the International Monetary System, a book that we discussed back in Season 2, Episode 12, and the context of the rise and fall of cryptocurrency. To learn more about Dr. Eichen Green, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Eichingreen and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Eichengreen, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start with some basics here. What is public debt? Is it different than, say, sovereign debt or national debt? It, it,
1: it's different and it's the same.
0: So, <laughs> okay. um,
1: when when uh, economists and historians talk about sovereign debt, uh, the sovereign, of course, is the king or the highest power. Uh, yeah. So sovereign debt means debt of the highest level of government. Typically, when we talk today about sovereign debt, we mean the debt of the central government or the national government. And when we talk about public debt, we we are uh, combining, aggregating the debts of, of the central government, the states, municipal governments, and oh,
0: interesting. Okay, that, so, that's so pu- public agree- debt. The way you describe it, then, Doctor Eikenberry, public debt is larger than national debt,
1: right? In a in, in a federal system where you have different levels of government. Um, That is the case. Uh, In some smaller countries, government debt basically is limited. The only entity that borrows is the central government, uh, in in, in which case public debt and sovereign debt collapse into the same thing. But in most countries, there is some borrowing by subnational governments. So there, the uh, distinction is important. I see. Um, Two points of clarification uh,
0: for me and our audience. One is sovereign debt is different than the phrase sovereign fund, right? Like, let's say they say, I don't know, Russia has 700, I don't know, million, whatever the number is in
1: sovereign fund. What's the difference? Um, so there could be two differences. Um, okay. You know, again, uh, sovereign refers to the national government or the highest level of government. Uh. So the, uh, there is sovereign debt. There can also be uh, the funds of the sovereign. So the sovereign will have assets as well as liabilities. The Japanese government famously owns a lot of land and other wow. assets. Or, or you could be referring to sovereign wealth funds, which are these um, investment funds that governments operate so the uh, Saudi government the Norwegian government governments that uh are yeah, yeah. temporarily earning a lot of revenues by exploiting natural resources want to salt them away for future generations or invest them productively so they invest them through their sovereign wealth fund so that may be what you're hearing what you're yeah saying. yeah so
0: summer wealth fund is something that they stock away and in, they invest and it also helps their currency exchanges
1: and uh certainly I, I i don't know that it that it has a direct impact on the exchange rate what has a direct impact on the exchange rate tends to be the fact that they are exporting a lot of oil and gas or i say whatever um which puts Upward pressure on the currency on the exchange rate creates what economists call Dutch disease Dutch problems. disease I uh, see you know that comes from the 1960s and 70s when the Dutch discovered a lot of natural gas in the North Sea and uh, their exchange rate strengthened their manufacturing sectors found it hard to compete internationally. Um, if the, is that why they call it a disease? Because it, it yeah, that's where why um, when when we see a, a, a country that discovers natural resources um, is able to export them in 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 large amounts, experiences uh, currency appreciation and its manufacturing sector tanks. That's um, an undesirable. Yeah, spares, it's unfortunate, and that's why it's called the Dutch disease. My second follow-up
0: question is this you mentioned um public debt is is it consumes not just national debt but also um things such as state provincial i suppose and also city and municipal debts um in your book uh, in defense of public debt you mostly talk about national debt but you also mention these sub-sovereign debts as as you termed it, it there's a special challenge with these types of debts is that correct
1: yeah that is correct so um state and local governments have more limited ability to adjust taxes if they have to raise more revenue in order to service debts because um companies and 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 households are footloose if taxes are high in california if we raise taxes again There's the danger uh, of people moving to Arizona or moving to Florida. So state and local governments are more constrained in in, in terms of uh, uh, adjusting the tax base, if you will. And there is a a second problem that because of this, um, sometimes uh, the central government feels compelled to bail out uh, the states uh, if one state. Defaults on its debts. Questions then arise about the solvency and the creditworthiness of o- other states, and you can get uh, a cont- domino effect, a contagious crisis of confidence, just like you can get in a banking system when Silicon Valley Bank fails. People begin to want- wonder about the solvency of First Republic, and so forth. You can get that those kind of uh, spillovers between state finances as well. So. Sometimes the central government feels compelled to step in and assume responsibility for the debts of the states to nationalize them. I see. Well, and, and that can, can make what was a reasonable sovereign debt balloon into a unreasonable or unsustainable sovereign debt. I learned a lot from two examples that you provided in your
0: book uh, one was the famous case uh, that was fundamental to our economy alexander hamilton uh, uh, pushed for the federal government the newly formed federal government to assume the revolutionary war debt of all states um, even if massachusetts has more debt than let's say virginia uh, and there were compromises that, that were made many people know that story the second thing that i learned is a case in which the federal government actually decided not to bail out states. And um, I think this was after the panic of 1837, after Jackson's presidency. Many states, um, I think Illinois was one of them, I don't recall all of them, uh, just borrowed, and many of them borrowed overseas, especially from Britain, and they defaulted. One of the challenges that uh, I hope you can clarify for me is... When a sub-sovereign entity, such as a state, defaults for foreign lenders, that poses a problem because they can't directly push for them to pay back. I mean, I guess in the old days, they can't send troops you know, to have them pay back.
1: Could you talk about that a little bit, please? That's a problem not only uh, when states, sub-sovereign states borrow, but also when the sovereign Itself borrows. So, uh, government uh, enjoys sovereign immunity under international law. It can be sued only in its own courts when it (laughs) extends permission to do so. So, uh, uh, that's bias, isn't it? There's some funny exceptions to the rule Uh, uh, hedge fund, a vulture fund, Mm Elliott and Associates, a decade and more. Ago tried to get around that problem after Argentina defaulted yeah. by seizing one of, one of its naval ships. When in Spain, right? I think it may have been in Ghana. Actually, oh, I see. You I know, see. who cares? Um, <laughs> so the the, the the general point is that uh, there is no uh, bankruptcy court with enforcement powers for uh, governments that borrow abroad. The main thing that compels governments to come to the negotiate to try to uh, maintain their good credit, to go back to the negotiating table when a bad thing happens, is they want to maintain their capital market access. They want to be able to borrow again in the future, so they have to give their, their creditors a reasonable deal when they run into difficulty. So we're seeing that right now with uh, a a wide variety of low-income countries. We've seen Zambia and uh, Chad and Ghana and uh, Sri Lanka uh, engaged in negotiations with their creditors because they're not able to pay at the moment given COVID and high commodity and energy prices and so forth. But they want to maintain or regain their access to international financial markets. Because they want to borrow again. So they can't can't be sued, um, but they can be threatened with a uh, lack of capital market access. And that's what make makes governments come to the bargaining table and bargain in good faith in most uh, cases. You know, you're talking about can't
0: be sued. Let's go back to a time where even suing may not have even mattered. Uh, You mentioned sovereign funds, um, uh, uh, sovereign debt, um, and going back in time, that meant probably kings and emperors' debts. For what purpose did monarchs start borrowing money?
1: In almost all cases, uh, in order to fight defensive and offensive wars war so all of a sudden they had to raise more funds than uh, could be conveniently um raised by their little army of tax administrators tax farmers and the like they had to pay mercenaries in order oh. to uh, defend their their yeah. bonds and themselves or they were engaged in uh, Offensive wars, either, either way, uh, those were the typical circumstances under which monarchs would borrow. In the, in, in the modern period, we see borrowing for investment in infrastructure. We see borrowing to meet other emergencies. Um, the Italian city states, I think Siena in the 14th century borrowed uh to meet a uh, public health emergency. Uh, oh and, wow you know oh, wow uh, the black death created uh expenses and depressed revenues. So uh that's a a, a precursor to COVID nineteen. That's uh, that's fascinating. If I'm if told one, one of the oldest
0: banks in Italy was in Siena when I was touring. I don't know if that's true or not, but go ahead please you were gonna add an it, additional it point. But,
1: but the um basic answer to your question is in order to meet military emergencies. So in your
0: book, examples of monarchs, kings and emperors, uh, borrowing goes all the way back to Rome. Uh, how from whom did they borrow?
1: they they borrowed from wealthy families and from private banks, which often was one and the same. So, Early banks, as in 13th and 14th century Italy, were uh, privately owned and operated family banks where uh, wealthy members of a family would pool their resources and, and, and they would lend to finance trade. They would provide credit to the Champagne fairs, the fairs in the Champagne region in what is now France, where campaign fairs, okay, where people would get together and trade. Uh, people would arrive there from far distant places in order to trade. They, uh, uh, those uh, family uh, owned and operated banks, would lend to the king of England or the king of Spain when uh, those monarchs had uh, reason to borrow. Uh, of the sort I, I described uh, f- before, so it's it's um, you know th- there were uh, 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 occasions where monarchs or republican legislatures in in, in Italian city states imposed for- forced loans on their uh, wealthy citizenry. Based. I love it. Forced loans, okay? You will you will buy these bonds. Uh, it was the the dictate, but uh, uh, more often than not, it was through the good offices uh, uh, of these private bankers, who who were very much in the banking business, providing credit for trade, for various forms of investments, and to sovereigns who often had to pay an interest rate premium because of the risks risk that they might not repay what they borrowed. This must, you, know, you mentioned interest rate premium.
0: Uh, this must have been good business because many of these monarchs defaulted. For example, you mentioned Philip II of Spain, whom defaulted, I think, four times uh, or something to that effect. And it must have been good business because people still lent to them eventually.
1: Yeah. So uh, throughout history, we see that risky lending comes with an interest rate premium attached it's a gamble where where the lender is gambling that the extra interest income will compensate him for the risk of default, uh, of non-repayment of not only uh, interest due, but the principal amount as well. And you can see cases in the history where it works out and cases where it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work out, where the Bardi, one of the most famous Italian banking families, is basically bankrupted. The Lombardi family? Bardi with a B. Uh, Bardi, Bardi with a B,
0: yeah. Um, We talked about champagne parties in the Champagne region in France, and we talked about Italy, England, I mentioned Rome. These are all Western nations, countries. We're talking about the Western civilization, quote, unquote, I'm using that term, as it was known back then. Um, And in your book, you actually make a point that cases of Eastern civilizations, I'm using that term in quotations again, such as the Ottomans, the, going back to Persian empires, uh, what have you, like Chinese empires, they did not borrow as much and as frequently is Did I get that point correctly?
1: You did. So the um, development of public debt, uh, a market in public debt is uh, a Europe-centered phenomenon. We see this market develop in Europe really before it develops anywhere else. Um, Attitudes toward indebtedness vary across societies and civilizations, to be sure. But I think the main factor here, and I take this insight from the late great historical sociologist Charles Tilley who taught at Wisconsin and elsewhere, was that it's really the political geography of Europe, which was divided into literally hundreds of uh, fragmented regional states and city-states, all of which butted up against one another, reflecting in turn Europe's physical geography as a continent divided by river valleys and mountain ranges and so forth. It was hard to unify the continent. The Romans managed to do it for a relatively brief historical period, if you will, but the historical regularity was Europe was divided into hundreds of territorial states and princely kingdoms and so forth, in contrast to, most obviously, China, much of which is a Great Plain yeah um, that uh was unified at a relatively early date that was able to build a great wall to keep out the Mongol invaders, which didn't have to raise funds, didn't have to borrow in order to fight uh its neighbors to the same extent as was often the case in Europe. So the story we tell in the book um building on Tilly's work and the work of um Jared Diamond, the historical anthropologist, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, others, is that Europe's uh, distinctive political uh, uh, physical geography uh, led to that distinctive political geography, which made Europe uh, a continent a, of current wars, much more frequent wars than other parts of the world, which in turn created the the the, the need to borrow. Uh, the demand for loans, uh, which was met by the growth uh, uh, of the infrastructure, the yeah. banking families and others needed to supply them.
0: This is really fascinating. So more wars in Europe led to more borrowing, which in turn created the industry and, and the skills for borrowing, which which will come to. And it becomes
1: very useful in later centuries for infrastructure and other works. Um, just um, uh, uh, observe in passing that there uh, is a large controversial literature about the role of war in European economic development more broadly, how European Uh uh, states were able to harness military technology like uh, um, cannon and uh, um, gunpowder gunpowder that was invented in the East, invented in China, yeah, but not really harnessed and applied to the same extent as in Europe, where you had to figure out how to use the gunpowder or you would be obliterated. Yeah, in, in China, they could take their time in developing the same expertise. So there's a financial story about war and financial development, but there's a broader story about war and economic development that you might or might not buy into. No, that's really
0: fascinating, which later led Europe, uh, allowed Europe to somewhat dominate world uh, politics and events, uh, especially in the 19th century. And we'll be back after a short break to talk about democracy and debt. We'll be right back. We can't talk about our national debt without also discussing America's out of control entitlement programs. How out of control? Well, Dr. John Kogan, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and also a professor of public policy program at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, explained it to me this way. Each year, the federal government spends about $700 billion of entitlement assistance on people who are in the upper half, upper half of the income distribution. This is an amazing episode with some shocking anecdotes. For example, Dr. Kogan told me that Civil War pension was still being doled out in 2020, (laughs) just three years ago, which was 156 years after the Civil War had ended. The link to my conversation with Dr. Kogan in Season 2, Episode 10, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with... Dr. Eichengreen. Dr. Eichengreen, reading your book, one could come away concluding that parliaments and republics were formed in response to the need to borrow more money. Maybe this is an exaggeration on my part, but is this assessment way off the
1: mark? It's one popular <laughs> interpretation of the emergence of um uh, constitutional government uh the uh the um glorious revolution in england in 1688 yeah se- that it was it was really uh uh the the power of investors that um uh the monarchy required uh, population of willing investors uh, and, and, and their emergence as a political force that led to uh, the appearance of Republican parliamentary forms of government where there were checks and balances limiting arbitrary action by uh, the sovereign, that the sovereign had to uh, concede something, namely limits on his or her sovereign powers in 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 return for continuing to be able to borrow so that's w- one strand of a large political science literature on on how it was we see the emergence of uh, uh, of parliamentary uh, and republican forms of, of government but um i think one can tell similar stories of of the republican governments Of the Italian city states of Genoa, Florence, um, Venice, and others. Even before the case of of the Glorious Revolution in England, one can tell similar stories about the emergence of the Estates General, the uh, Republican legislatures of the Low Countries uh, of, of what we now refer to as the Netherlands. So, as with all things, Um, historical, the complete story is undoubtedly more complicated. But for a historian of public debt, this is uh, a significant part of that story. So we're talking about
0: early Republican forms of government, some of which include parliaments, others, a a different sort of body of legislature. Uh, Were they better able to borrow money? I think I know the answer to that, but there's a reason for that, right?
1: Um. Boy, is there a large literature um, <laughs> disputing the answer to that? Oh, disputing, okay, indeed, disputing. So there was a, a, a an early and very influential article by the Nobel Prize-winning uh, economic historian Douglas North and political scientist at Stanford Barry Weingast, that asserted, in, in, in indeed, you could see that the, uh, the the purse strings were loosened after. Um, uh, the transition to uh, a parliamentary government in Britain after the Glorious Revolution interest rates came down and, and the king was able to borrow more freely at lower interest rates and then uh, lots of subsequent economic historians revisited their um, data and conclusions I think where we come out now is that yes there is an effect but it takes longer uh, to materialize than North and Weingast initially asserted. So they said, glorious revolution occurs in 1688, form of government in Britain changes, interest rates immediately come down to lower levels and borrowing for the king becomes easier. Uh, three decades later, four decades later, most people read the evidence of saying it took longer, it took a couple of generations before the effect really uh uh, materialized before people were convinced that this change in government and these checks on arbitrary action by the king were durable and credible. Uh, so um, uh, the situation didn't was not transformed overnight, but eventually it was transformed. Two clarifying follow-up questions, uh, please. Uh, when we talk about lower interest
0: rates, that means that investors, Felt more comfortable lending to these forms of government. In this case, we're talking about um, Britain uh, in the late 17th century. is one of the, is one of the reasons that they felt more comfortable in lending to Britain. The fact that there was a parliament, that there were committees that were discussing that there was, I, I, I don't know, I'm making up this word more transparency than let's say if it was just a king ma- making decisions in his bedchamber about how much to spend is that the reason?
1: yes so I think there w- there there was more transparency and there um was the uh the the fact that the King basically had to have parliamentary assent now in order to buy yeah. it. so it's it's transparency and it's checks and balances
0: kind of limitations he couldn't just spend so much money where he couldn't pay the original debt uh, back anymore
1: but Uh, other you know other cases like the dutch estates general it was very much transparency where they uh the the estates general the legislative legislature equivalent would appoint an inspector general who would you know publish accounts that would um make available lots of, uh, of more and better information than had been available before on on the state's true finances. It's like now there are
0: people, or at least in this case, a person that with a whip saying, no, you can't spend money on this. This is how much money we have. It's, 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 it's tightly, perhaps not as tightly as today's standards, but it was tightly controlled, the expenditure of money. And that's what mel- made investors or lenders feel a little more comfortable. More tightly uh, controlled, more tightly controlled. There you go. Um, going back in time ta- uh, going forward actually in time, I want to go back to a phrase that you and I kept on using and distinguish it for what happens in the latter half of the nineteenth century. We talked about Republican governments. We talked about early and Republican city states, and we talked about the republic government of the Netherlands, the Low Countries. These are all Republican form of government, forms of government. They're not true democracies, franchise. The voting franchise is not widespread. As we move forward in the 19th century and surely in the beginning of the 20th century, everyone starts to vote. I mean, relatively everyone, women, people that don't have property. <laughs> Did this wreak havoc on the level of debt? Did this cause more demand for public debt?
1: It certainly comp- compli- complicated the public debt landscape. So, in the book, we look at a uh, couple of a number of episodes in the 19th century where the extent of the franchise was limited, where only men uh, with property yeah. were in, in, enfranchised and could vote, as was the case in uh, Britain even though it had three reform acts in the 19th century which extended the franchise, the franchise was still limited to people with a certain amount of property or a certain amount of wealth. So, people with property or wealth tend to also be bondholders or their interests tend to be aligned with those of the bondholders. Interesting, interesting. One one explanation for how it was uh, Britain was able to run Um, budget surpluses, primary budget surpluses, in every year between 1821, when it finally uh, came out of the Napoleonic and French Wars, and 1899, the end of the century, is that- I'm sorry, let me stop
0: you one more, please. Britain ran budget surpluses from 1821 to 1899?
1: Primary budget surpluses every year for eight decades, and it worked down what had been a (laughs) <laughs> very, very heavy public debt, um, because the the bond wow. debtors, the creditors, the investors, were dominated the um, the legislature. Um, the United States um, came out of our Civil War with a uh, higher debt to GDP ratio than before, and oh, it was wow. almost able to re- retire the entirety of that debt by the eve of World War One. Even though we had universal male white suffrage, even though debtors, you know, the farmers in the populist era were outspoken debtors, even though debtors as well as creditors could vote. So uh, what I'm saying here is that, um, yes, universal (laughs) franchise democracy complicates matters, but you can still have fiscal discipline in- uh, A democracy. So just uh, this week with a co-author, I looked at uh, cases since 1980 where countries were able to run primary budget surpluses of at least 3% of GDP for at least five consecutive years. You know, something we, we aspire to in the United States, but fail at. Uh-huh, of course, yeah. Uh, and uh, democracies are more likely to do that than non-democratic countries, than autocracies. So democracies, when they get their act together, can deal with an inherited debt problem. Not so much when the democracy is polarized, when there are big uh, differences in priorities between left and right, if you will. In that case, there is... um, starve the beast behavior where taxes are cut to prevent the other party from increasing spending on its preferred programs when the other party comes into power. It's hard to sustain uh, debt consolidation process when uh, you're not going to be in office next year. But when uh, polarization has been low, when uh, government has relatively stable democracy and bringing down public debt has gone together Um, in the minute we have left of this segment
0: i wanted to get your your input on a development in the 19th century i'm going back in time um, and we're going to talk about surpluses in in the next segment as well here's my question about the 19th century why foreign debt how did uh, many nations and not just Britain, um, in the Americas and other areas of the world, started borrowing more, sort of developing their own industry to borrow. But many of them borrowed outside their own sovereign state. Um, I think in your book, you give an example, several examples about Argentina and others.
1: Why? Because uh, there is a lack of domestic savings. There is a big per capita income gap between uh the leading European powers, Britain, France, Prussia, uh, and the like, on the one hand, and newly independent uh, republics in Latin America in the 1820s. Yeah, this is the first industrial industrial revolution when Europe takes off and the rest of the world doesn't economically. And second big differences in financial development that uh, for the reasons we were talking about before, Um, markets and public debt develop first in Europe. So there are deep and liquid financial markets on which newly independent Latin American republics can float bonds in the 1820s where they don't have bond markets at home yet. It takes them decades uh, and more to, to develop those markets. And in many ways, they're still dependent on those global markets
0: to finance their operations at home.
1: They are. So there's been a push in recent decades to try to develop domestic financial markets in developing countries, middle-income countries, uh, to try to be able to float bonds, place bonds with domestic investors as opposed to foreign investors. And my view is that that effort has met with mixed success. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back uh, after a short break
0: to talk about central banks. Hey there, Newspeelers! We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series, with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on US politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Green, reading your book, it is obvious that central banks are integral to modern economies, uh, kind of the lenders of last resort. Um, When did central banks, or or however you want to call them going back in history, start to play an important role in public debt?
1: Um, The answer is um, at the beginning. (laughs) Or as long as central banks have existed, they have played a role in the market for public debt. So central banks were created as bankers to the government to provide financial services to the government, to advance the government funds when uh, the government was desperate for, for money in order to fight a war. or. Whatever, and then to help the government uh, and uh, place uh, bonds with the public, they acted as underwriters, if you will, for public debt. What an underwriter does is advance money to the borrower and then market the bonds. And if it's a private underwriter, take a cut in of the revenues in response in 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 return to for providing those services. So in the case of central banks, rather than taking a cut of the revenues, they might get other privileges as recompense, like yeah. monopoly on the on on issuing currency or something like that. So it has always been the case that central banks act as bankers to the government, um, and uh, it's still the case to a more limited extent today um
0: the story of central banks which you say goes back to the beginning if if you know you can go back to Italian families that acted as banks although not central banks to other nations um, and, and and move move forward in history banks such as Bank of England or the first and second banks of the United States the the interesting the funny thing about them is that they were actually private entities well pseudo private entities i guess how did that work like how can you have someone that wants to make a profit help the nation isn't there a conflict of interest inherently baked it, in there
1: it, it's a very complicated relationship so I, I i would remind you that the federal reserve system today has private shareholders uh I'm sorry say that again, our Fed has private shareholders. The Fed today has private shareholders um, the uh member banks oh okay. hold shares in the federal reserve, but you know what they can vote on and what they can decide is limited, just like in a private corporation today you have uh different classes of shareholders with different voting and control, yeah, and, uh, yeah yeah rights. Uh, the same has, is, is true of the Fed and uh, was even more true in, in, in past cases where central banks were purely private entities, where there was the understanding that the government would take them over if they didn't uh, mainly uh, pursue policies that were in the public interest. So oh, I see. That implicit threat, threat over there, right? In the background that 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 basically uh, dictated that uh, there, there were certain understandings about what was in the public interest. And even a private bank that was bankrupt interest in government that had monopoly privileges on notice you, uh, would, would not abuse those privileges.
0: Um, when it comes to central banks, I'm a bit bashful to ask this question. It may it may sound too silly and too rudimentary, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you know, reading your book, this is, I came across this several times, but I, it doesn't even have to be your book. You can read the Wall Street Journal today, where the Fed buys bonds floated by the U.S. Treasury and other central banks, so to speak, do that. They they buy their own nation's debt. <laughs> To a layperson like me, I'm not an economist. Isn't that like taking money out of one pocket and stuffing it into the other pocket? At the end of the day, is the nation's debt?
1: How does how does that help? How does that grease the wheels? Well, so um, it greases the wheels by um, providing and ensuring that the interest rate the government faces will be lower than otherwise, because there's an additional investor, a big. Investor to buy the government's bonds, namely the central bank. I'll, I'll give you a couple uh, uh, of additional answers. I see the perplexed look on your face. <laughs> um, yeah. Technically, the way the Congressional Budget Office and the US Treasury think about this is that if US Treasury bonds are bought by the Social Security Security Administration or another branch of government, they're, they're not counted as debt held by the public, debt in the hands of the public, because it's just debt that the, the government issues and the government absorbs, and the two cancel out. However, debt held by the Federal Reserve is counted as debt in the hands of the public. So why we treat these things differently, one answer would be ask the Treasury and and and, uh, <laughs> and, and the other public accountants and the CBO. Yeah. I, I, I think the answer is that, um, uh, when the, when the, uh, the, the Fed doesn't always remit profits to the government. So when the fed earns interest income on the government bonds that it holds, it can turn around and, and, and use those profits for different things like backing for the loans that it, provides to banks in need and so forth. I'm not sure that was a terribly clear or convincing answer but the, uh, the 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 way this matter is treated in the United States is that the the Fed is not regarded as simply another pocket or branch of government from this point of view but um uh, other um, branches of government like the Social Security Trust Fund are. So when Social Security holds government bonds, that debt and those investments basically cancel out. So the debt held by the Social Security Trust Fund, for example, is not debt held by um, uh, Fannie and Freddie, I think, is not. But debt held by the Fed is counted as debt in the hands of the public. So if you look at the statistics, there are two, two numbers out there, total debt of the federal government and debt of the federal government held by the public. And Oh, wow. And the latter includes debt held by the Fed, excludes debt held by entities like the Social Security Administration. You appreciate how complicated this is. It's more complicated every minute we talk. <laughs> um, in your book, you, you
0: you warn a lot, quite a bit. There's a lot of different uh, anecdotes, passages uh, that warn about involvement of private banks in public debt. Uh, on one of the pages, you, uh, I forget the context, but I'll read it. It says, relying on the banking system for policy implementation is just a bad thing. Yet, here we are, all all banks, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, B of A, name him, and I'm sure it's the same in Europe, own U.S. debt. Is there a specific type of debt or a specific type of involvement that your book talks about, or is this just a general sort of blanket statement for everything?
1: No, it, 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 it it's a statement about holding uh, excessive amounts of public debt and not hedging the interest rate risk. Silicon Valley like, so, yeah, uh, is the paradigmatic case in point where it experienced basically a fourfold increase in its deposits between 2018 and 2022, and it didn't know where to park all this money. Uh, couldn't find good places to in, in, invest it or lend it, so it parked it in treasury bonds. And then- uh, in its wisdom, it took off the interest rate hedges that it had purchased previously. This was a way to goose profits. yeah. In the short run, and one might think a way to goose CEO pay and bonuses. And <laughs> then when interest rates rose, it got hammered by uh, losses on this big treasury bond portfolio, uh, unhedged treasury bond for- portfolio. So I think the answer is, Don't require the banks to buy government bonds as a way of making it easy for the government to borrow. Um, I see. Attach appropriate risk weights to investments in government bonds. So I was in India two weeks ago, and I I learned that the risk weights on state government bonds in India are zero, which is contrary to best practice internationally what everybody says one should do but this is a way of making it easier for the states to borrow at lower interest rates and it can come back to bite you if it causes the banks to load up on government bonds because they don't have to put aside capital in order to uh back provide backing against the possible risks So, going Um, back to your book in current
0: State of India, as in their financial affairs, uh, if India's public debt, national debt, goes sour, it will it may just completely
1: demolish the banking system, too. Pra, pra, go ahead, please. So um, India's uh, uh, overall government debt to GDP ratio, public debt to GDP ratio is on the order of 90% now only a little bit below that in the US. People there are not troubled by the fact because India is growing at six or 7% a year. So it's growing the denominator of the debt to GDP ratio much faster than we are able to do. But if it slows down, then you have an issue, right? Then you have an issue and the and to the extent that this debt is disproportionately held by banks Insurance companies and pension funds. There are important institutional investors who could quickly find themselves in 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 trouble under those circumstances. So I oh boy um, did a paper on this a couple of weeks that was presented a couple of weeks ago with a uh, a couple of co-authors uh, in India, and uh, that was our message. Don't be so sanguine about a issue that is. Uh, treated as a non-problem in the Indian press.
0: Were representatives of the Indian government sitting there listening to you?
1: They were. You know, and and just because uh, the message is sent doesn't necessarily mean that the message is received. (laughs) Let's take a break here.
0: Stay with me and Dr. Iken Green as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Eiken Green, uh, let's get back to your book in defense of public debt. So let's make the case for public debt. What are the good uses of public debt?
1: Well, I think um, public debt is a critically important resource for meeting emergencies, Uh, wars, uh, pandemics, energy crises like Europe experienced in 2022. And uh, in, in addition, Uh, Borrowing now in order to invest in productive infrastructure that yields a stream of returns over time out of which uh, the borrowed money can be paid back, productive infrastructure that boosts the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, um, Borrowing for purposes of investing in that can be a good thing as well. So when we see uh, countries participating in china's belt and road program the question is always are these infrastructure investments productive or not or to the contrary are they uh, air- empty airports as in the case of sri lanka yeah, uh, yeah. railways that go from no place to nowhere as in the case of kenya uh, which infrastructure projects are are productive
0: and those countries are running into a lot of trouble uh, with China on their servicing their debts. So you talked about uh, meeting emergencies and infrastructure, what you didn't identify in good uses of public debt. And I'm not saying you were excluding, I'm just saying what you identified and what you didn't is things like Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, and gosh, a litany of uh, entitlement programs.
1: Yeah, so I think on ongoing... Uh, expenditures like that have to be paid for by ongoing revenues and, 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 and borrowing in order to meet them indefinitely into the future is, is, is a very serious problem. So, um, I've sounded relatively sanguine about the public debt outlook for the last hour. The book is called in defense of public debt, but I I share the worries that, uh, other people have voiced. There was, uh, editorial last week in the New York Times. There is a column today as we speak in the Financial Times warning that uh, entitlement programs are uh, underfunded and borrowing in order to make transfer payments and meet social security payments and Medicare and and, and Medicaid uh, outlays will not be sustainable over, over the long run. So the solution to that Uh, There's never a simple solution, but it's multifaceted. Number one, I think some of those programs ought to be means tested. Uh, Why are we making social security payments to millionaires who have plenty of savings on on the basis of which they can retire? That's the argument for means testing. And um, this comment will not make me popular in most circles. The United (laughs) States is a relatively lightly taxed economy by advanced country standards and we could use a value-added tax or a billionaire's tax or a wealth tax to um, boost revenues and pay for those programs as well. Uh,
0: A couple of comments. One, the New York Times editorial board uh, piece that you're referring to, I think, even mentions your book and defense of public debt. Um, That's one. Uh, The second thing is everything that you recommended lies in the face of politics, right? <laughs>
1: well, um, that that's the critical issue for public debt management through the ages, that uh politics can create a bias toward borrowing too much. Politics can make attempting to put off the day of reckoning and leave the necessary debt consolidation for another day. And the more polarized and fractionalized your politics, uh, the more difficult it is to get your arms around these problems. And some entitlement programs may make a lot of sense
0: because they they appeal to a wider swath of voters, uh, which goes back to a couple of segments ago when we were talking about democracy. May actually create a uh, blow to your debt. I don't want to use the term welfare state because that just has so many political sort of um, meanings. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Iken Green. Um, Thank you for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was fun. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history at history behind news we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish otherwise we're not affiliated with our guests we just think they teach us pretty cool history the history behind our news also Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.